0: Hello and welcome to the Science and Belief in Society podcast, brought to you by the International Research Network for the study of science and belief in society. Religious practices and their effects are increasingly the subject of scientific investigation. In the field of contemplative science, Meditative practices drawn from Buddhist traditions are united with techniques of analysis from cognitive and neurosciences. Marika Smolka, a PhD researcher at Maastricht University in Science and Technology Studies and Fulbright Scholar at Arizona State University, has ethnographically explored this community. Marika's work traces the development of contemplative science from fringe to mainstream interest and demonstrates the tensions and trade-offs in play when exploring religious practices from within the boundaries of the neoliberal academy. My name Dr. Will Mason-Wilkes and I'm very happy to be joined by my co-host, Dr. James Riley. It's been a while, James. How are you doing?
1: It is. It has. It has been a while. I'm doing well, though. I'm glad to be back in the uh, in the studio, as we call it.
0: Back in the studio, which also happens to be the office, spare room, you know, room for various things that aren't, don't have another place, you know, a bit like, bit like us in academia, but we can, we can not, you know, maybe draw bad parallels there, but uh, instead get on with, uh, <laughs> with what we're here to do today, which is a very exciting interview, and we're very pleased to be welcoming Marika Smolka. So, welcome Marika, how are you doing?
2: Yeah, hello. Many thanks for inviting me, first of all. Um, I'm doing very well. So I moved at the beginning of March to Tempe to work at Arizona State University. And I really enjoy it here because um, yeah, I'm getting slowly used to the desert. It's moving up to 35 degrees Celsius. And I really like the warm weather, you know, <laughs> going swimming, hiking. But I'm actually here to collaborate with Dr. Eric Fisher from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society. And I'm at the same time completing my PhD research in the field of science and technology studies, as you mentioned, on ethics practices and contemplative science.
0: That's fantastic. And I'm extremely jealous of 35 degrees. So Actually, I think if I was in 35 degrees, I'm not sure how well I'd do, but uh, it's about 12 degrees in Cardiff today. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So, thank you so much for joining us, and I know you've got up early to join us as well. So, thank you again for that. We'll try, you know, trying to make this worth worth getting out of bed for. Um, but as uh, as you mentioned, there your kind of PhD research, and that's kind of one of the first sort of uh, topics I'd like to touch on because your research involved uh, an ethnographic study of researchers themselves who work on contemplative science, and this is kind of ranging from neuroscientists to religious studies scholars, and then kind of some of the values which underpin their work. So just first of all, could you tell us what is contemplative science and then why is it important to understand its values?
2: Yeah, so contemplative science, if I put it briefly, when I'm usually asked to define what this community is all about, then I say it's the neuroscientific, psychological and clinical study of contemplative practices like mindfulness meditation. The label contemplative science, however, is pretty contested among the researchers who actually do this kind of work, so this is what I noticed when I joined the so called contemplative science conferences and then I heard that there were. yeah some people really taking distance from the label, while others were endorsing it, Um, but before I go into this. um, Disagreement about the label. Let me just give you a brief um, overview of the emergence of the term and the history of the field. Um, and I think that also touches upon this interesting value base that um, I studied in my PhD research. So historically speaking, um, the emergence of contemplative science is rooted in the first dialogue between the Dalai Lama and Western scientists. Um, I think we always talk about 1987 as being the starting point also of the Mind and Life Institute, which emerged from these dialogues. That's um, an American nonprofit organization that was founded by the neuroscientist Francisco Varela, the entrepreneur Adam Engeler, and the Dalai Lama. And they all work together to um, bring forward the vision of uh, what got later called contemplative science. And I just brought this vision here as it's articulated in the mission statement of the Mind and Life Institute, because I think it really nicely captures the two elements that are brought together in contemplative science. So I'll just read that out. When the Mind and Life Institute began over three decades ago, our founders envisioned a future where science and contemplative wisdom would come together to promote human flourishing. We are inspired not only by questions that drive scientific insight, but also by those that move people to greater compassion and action. So I think this vision is pretty interesting because it joins on the one hand, an epistemological project with an ethical cause on the other hand. And so on the epistemological side, this is really about including disciplined first-person investigations of experience cultivated through Buddhist contemplative practice to better understand how the brain works. So in that sense, contemplative science could be considered as sub-discipline of the neurosciences, which focuses on Tibetan Buddhism, the study of it, also mainly given the involvement of the Dalai Lama and his support in motivating Buddhist monks to participate in such research. And then on the other hand contemplative science has this ethical agenda of orienting science towards pro-social values which resonate with Buddhist virtues of loving kindness and compassion. And so in that sense, I think yeah, we see here this interesting combination, which is not so usual, I'd say, for the scientists also given that this community emerged in the 80s, because usually the idea of scientists is that values are somewhere else there in society and politics, but they're not at the heart of their own activities. But yeah, before I go further into that, let me talk a bit more about the term contemplative science. And I should probably mention here the Tibetan scholar and practitioner Alan Wallace, who um, published in 2003 the book Contemplative Science Where Buddhism and Science Converge. And um, in this book, he outlines this idea of how the two could inspire one another, but I think what's even more important is that Alan Wallace was also the person who was involved in the early dialogues with the Dalai Lama and joined the first neuroscientific study with the monks in collaboration with Francisco Varela and other scientists, scholars and supporters in the Himalayas. And here, it's, I think, important also to mention that this vision of contemplative science is really about not only considering uh, Buddhist monks or Buddhist practitioners as study subjects, but as active collaborators in designing research projects. Because the idea is that, of course, this research involves a lot of intercultural communication, understanding their belief systems, their language, the way they practice contemplation, and the first-person perspective is really important. So for contemplative scientists, it was all about breaking the taboo of subjectivity that had prevailed in Western science for so long by bringing first-person subjective experience into conversation with third-person objective data. But as you can imagine, this is, a really ambitious project. Um, um, We see in fact that until now only a fraction of meditation research conducted since the 1990s has followed this original contemplative science agenda. Instead, most of the research that is today associated with the label is rather clinical in nature, testing the health benefits of the mindfulness based stress reduction program also abbreviated as MBSR, which was developed by Jon Kabat-Zinn, a molecular biologist. Um, Kabat-Zinn created the MBSR um, program in the 1980s at the University of Massachusetts, um, and it became very quickly the dominant paradigm for clinical studies on meditation. And that's uh, mainly because it has a standardized eight week format, and that really lends itself um, to be used as a clinical intervention. So, in fact, we say that up to 2017, there were more than 600 published studies on MBSR. So in that sense, you say this got really, really big, um, pretty hyped. Um, And it was really important for Kabat-Zinn to push MBSR into clinical research because uh, he uh, knew that if you want to bring something into medicine and into other social institutions, then um, science has the authority to do so, to give you scientific legitimacy, um, also to gather support from insurance companies, um, uh, especially in light of the countercultural error that research on meditation had um, in its early days, I would say. But again, now the strong association between mindfulness research and contemplative science is one of the reasons why researchers today are so uncomfortable sometimes with the label. That's at least my hypothesis. Um, Because um, I mentioned before, there was quite a hype around mindfulness research. Um, It was growing exponentially since the early 2000s. And this hype around the scientific evidence, of course, came with a lot of media attention, but also with a critical backlash. And the critical backlash came both from within and without contemplative science. Um, If we think about it from within contemplative science, there were actually more and more voices raised addressing methodological flaws um, in these studies. So um, basically saying, ah, there's not as much scientific evidence, it's not as robust as as it was initially portrayed and especially um, spread or um, taken up by the media. And um, that is one of the reasons why I think there is now a kind of a distance that is taken from the label. Um, Also, um, there's a concern about this kind of research, mindfulness research um, being compromised because um, researchers might be interested in proving that mindfulness works given their own meditation experience. And that brings us back to the original vision of Francisco Varela, who was all about combining first-person um, experience with third-person data, not only by studying um, Tibetan Buddhist monks, but also by asking scientists themselves to uh, become active um, contemplative practitioners, such as Francisco Varela was himself. But of course, this idea of um, being very proficient and what you're researching brings on all concerns about biases um, into the conversation and away way conflicts of interest, you could say, modestly speaking. So in that that, that sense, um, yeah, this was also a reason why, um, um, yeah, people got um, concerned about the label. And um, at the same time, I also just want to point out that, again, realizing this original vision that actually many people in the community find pretty valuable has also been um, up to date, challenging um, from a... Yeah, from a personal point of view, because you can imagine in the dynamics of academia, where usually we put everything neatly into disciplinary boxes, we're also nowadays, and yeah, probably for a long time already, um, we need to provide tangible outcomes quickly, given the neoliberal turn of the universities. Of course, it's very difficult to be, be a really in-depth or dedicated um, meditation practitioner, as well as... Um, as a scientist, um, so in that sense, this brings us back to why people actually endorse the label, because some people are really fond of contemplative science because it's connected to this original vision. So, for the Life and Mind and Life Institute, for instance, holding on to the label is a way of emphasizing that this is what contemplative science is about: this original vision that I just articulated, joining the ethics and the epistemology, and really also um, training people and first person um, Buddhist contemplation. But still, there are two more things that I want to mention, which again, um, people see critical in this very original vision. And that is um, something that is included in the term itself. Um, So we have here on the one hand contemplation, which is, um, I think, as you already heard through in my answer before is, is usually connected to Tibetan Buddhism, but of course there are more contemplative practices um, but something like christian prayer or shamanic rituals haven't received as much attention in the contemplative science community and um, in that sense uh, people also yeah want to say contemplation is more and broaden up the field and so since contemplative science was more on the Tibetan buddhist side that's also what makes the label difficult and um, secondly um, it has the it has the term science in it, and you already uh, said, you know, it's an interdisciplinary community, actually, including philosophers, including social scientists, also including uh, educators, meditation coaches and other professionals who are somehow interested in contemplative um, practices and their study, and they don't really feel represented by contemplative science, um, the label itself, um, and some of them prefer also to talk about contemplative studies instead. So yeah, this was quite a lot—a pretty interwoven history. I hope you could follow me here, but yeah, please follow up wherever you think I should um, make things more uh, clear or go more in depth.
0: Oh, well, that's uh, fascinating, Marika. Um, Marika sorry, and a, a, yeah, extremely kind of rich and, and detailed history there. That is it's fascinating. I mean. There's, there's, there's a lot of things I want to pick up on, um, and I'll try, I'll try and bring and, and myself in just to, to not monopolise the conversation and give James, James also a chance to ask things. But I thought, I, thought, I find it fascinating that um, that thread you're kind of picking up on, on the kind of, on the one hand, the sort of original vision of contemplative science, having this clear kind of political, if you like, or ethical project about, you know, building you know or or kind of constructing a kind of new kind of science which which kind of unites sort of or or kind of you know move science away from that kind of objective you know whatever you might kind of think about science being in that you know those kind of the traditional sort of conception of how science works and building in kind of subjectivity and some of these kind of other ethical kind of considerations and then kind of a sort of later or kind of parallel development that much more kind of a lot, You know, that, that kind of draws on some of these these practices, but without sort of that kind of ethical or political kind of dimension in the kind of mindfulness research. I mean, that um, if I did understand you correctly, if I didn't please tell me, but um, but is that, you know, I mean, the the kind of I know some of the critique of mindfulness research is exactly on that kind of, you know, line that actually people kind of use these techniques, you know, in, in people thinking about mindfulness, uh, but that come from this kind of tradition that has a lot of, you know, um, that, that that is more than just about kind of reconciling yourself as an individual to the kind of problems of the world, right? It's not just about, you know, using these things kind of therapeutically to make yourself, you know, deal with stress better, which, you know, in a lot of institutions nowadays is kind of a way in which mindfulness is kind of deployed like you know you have a you know high levels of stress do some meditation you know this is a kind of sort of the neoliberal academy kind of, of set, setting people that you know that that's how you sort of fix yourself or other kind of jobs you know military uses like st- soldiers with PTSD for instance you know do meditation you you know that's a way of of dealing with the things that have happened rather than thinking actually there are structural things that about the world that we need to change rather than just reconciling yourself to them so I just find that really interesting I don't exactly know if this is a question sorry but it's a long comment about the about how some of the you know those themes are kind of at least coming from that they seem to be similar themes that have arisen in this community of contemplative science and how it's kind of fractured a little bit or how it developed in these kind of slightly different or parallel ways just I don't know if you want to reflect on that at all if that made any sense sorry
2: No, for sure. And in a way, what you just mentioned, uh, this is actually the critical backlash that came also came mainly also from without contemplative science. So from social scientists, humanities scholars, Buddhist practitioners themselves who have less pointed at um, the methodological flaws, but more went into the socio ethical implications of um, the study of meditation. And this of course is all about, as you mentioned, um, you know, stripping Buddhism of its intellectual, effective, and ethical roots. And this is what people were concerned about because Uh, Buddhist practitioners often um, practice um, attention to the present moment from a vocation of love and compassion, and this is really at the heart. And if you um, frame mindfulness or meditation, um, depending on what technique we're talking about, as a brain training, then of course, this scientific framing seems to leave out all these other um, aspects. Also, I mean, this is just a a simple uh, methodological issue. Again, if we study meditation in a brain scanner, then of course, this is often something else than practicing meditation in a temple where you smell incense, and where you sit with with a group of of people. So there are different things coming together. To what extent can you actually tune down a practice um, um, like meditation to something that is just happening in the heart? And uh, this has both scientific uh, questions attached to it, but also socio-ethical questions in terms of, are we banalizing the Buddhist path to awakening here? And how does that change uh, culture, um, uh, religion, um, yeah, and society or personhood, um, if we think further about this. So, yeah, these are really um, interesting interesting questions, yeah.
1: Thanks, Marika. Um, really, really interesting stuff. I um, just wanted to ask, is, uh, your work also involved um, engagement and active collaboration with meditation researchers to stimulate discussion on, on those kind of social ethical dimensions and implications of their work. So I just wanted to ask, uh, uh, what are the social and ethical implications of this kind of research and how did your active engagement and collab- collaboration uh, with the researchers help, help bring these to, to light?
2: Yeah, so we already touched upon the socio-ethical implications to some extent, but I think I I just want to point out that what I try to do in my PhD research is almost to sidestep these debates and rather look at practices. So let me just quickly summarize what I call the debate again, or what has also been referred to as the mindfulness wars. Because on the one hand, we have these critics, usually from the social sciences, humanities and Buddhist practice, practitioners who really point at these implications that we just summarized. I mean, also not only um, addressing the scientific framing of um, meditation, but also to what extent uh, is this now taken up in research uh, for military or corporate business applications. This was a debate in the community which raised ethical concerns. And then um, what Will was just mentioning, this idea of um, science being a major contributor to what Ronald Purser in his book Mac Mindfulness also called a new capitalist spirituality, where mindfulness be, or meditation becomes a form of individual stress relief that encourages practitioners to accommodate themselves to the precious demands and precarity of the neoliberal social order rather than um, changing it. So it's also you know, promoting uh, a model um, that frames mental health as an individual problem whose solution lies in personal transformation rather than institutional or structural change. So we have this on one side but then on the other side we also had of course quite some responses to this critique from the contemplative science community or mindfulness research community itself so um, as persis book circulated widely contemplative scientists psychotherapists and mindfulness coaches published responses that um, pointed out that their research was motivated by the aim to help people with chronic diseases and pain um, and to contribute to human flourishing and well-being so, um, in answer to Proudhon, they claim that such research is not intended to feed into the corporate or capitalist appropriation of meditation, but rather seeks to provide scientific validation for medical treatment and lifestyle interventions. Um, but what I try to claim in my dissertation is that, in a way, these um, two positions are relatively abstract. So. Um, one stressing the inherent ethicality of this kind of research and the other saying that it's ethically corrupt. Um, So both sides have in common that they largely reason about about the ethics of meditation divorced from its practices and they seem to project the effects of scientific research into the future as though these happen automatically, either solving societal problems or exacerbating social injustice. And um, I think that separating ethics from scientific activities as they are practiced on the laboratory floor and projecting normative effects into the future, we run into issues here because we do not pay attention to ethical conundrums and values um, embedded in the actual work that makes this kind of research happen. And I think it's also potentially problematic both for proponents of contemplative science and for its critics. Because if proponents emphasize the pro sociality of contemplative science without translating such values into action, they endanger the field's reputation and legitimacy. And if critics remain removed from actual research, they are unlikely to affect the conduct of contemplative science. So in in my research, I tried to not go further into these theoretical debates. I mean, those have been outlined quite a lot. but to rather look at practices of valuation as they occur on the laboratory floor during scientific meetings and workshops and at academic conferences. And I focused here on contemplative science mostly in the European context where the field was growing since the early 2000s, which also led to the foundation of the European Mind and Life Institute now operating independently from its American sister organization. And part of my research was ethnographic in nature, so studying how knowledge exchange at scientific conferences and knowledge making practices in the laboratory were related to norms of good research on meditation. And the other part of my research was more engaged. So, this means that I actively collaborated with scientists to stimulate reflections on the values embedded in their work practices. And I did this both in curated workshops with contemplative scientists from different institutions. Many I had um, gotten to know during contemplative um, science conferences and also at uh, scientific meetings. Um, and I also collaborated with researchers in a laboratory engagement project, um, in particular with the research team from the Silver Santi study, which is a clinical trial on the impact of meditation and comparison to learning English as a foreign language on healthy aging. And to stimulate reflections on values, I work with a protocol for reflexive dialogues, which was developed by Dr. Eric Fisher from Arizona State University. So that's also why I'm actually here at the moment to continue my collaboration with uh, Eric Fisher. And the protocol was employed on a regular basis. Um, to structure um, interactions between me and the Sivasanti team. Uh, Sivasanti team. So um, it includes um, questions that help elicit socioethical considerations, which often implicitly influence scientific decision-making, but are not necessarily thought about. So going through the protocol um, makes explicit what is usually implicit in expert practices and decision-making. And in my interactions with the Silver Sante team, the reflexive dialogues to help make explicit, for example, that ethics in clinical trial research is not only a matter of sticking to research regulation, but often involves local decision-making on what is ethical to do in a given situation. For instance, when when it comes to the disclosure of clinically relevant findings to study participants like the detection of a brain tumor in in a research scan. But this is probably more general. So so let me give you another example that is more related to of plate of science and the socio-ethical issues that are relevant to that field. And and here I would like to bring the example of the so-called modern mindfulness looping effect, which was um, named as such by Evan Thompson, who's drawing on the work by hacking on looping effects. And Thompson states that in conceptualizing mindfulness as a brain training, scientists project it into the brain, making it real by virtue of its neural markers. So the scientific concept, especially if it's then taken up by the media and statements like to be mindful, you need to regulate your amygdala. This links back to how people think about themselves. So mindfulness comes to be conceived as a detached individualized practice inside the mind taken to be fundamentally the brain, which people then need to control to lead more fulfilled and peaceful lives. And um, I observed how the Seda-Santi team recognized the modern mindfulness looping effect at work in their research, and they took measures to counteract it. So to take into account the wider socio-ethical horizon against which the study was carried out, they changed their public communication about meditation foregrounding the social and compassionate dimension of the practice. So, you know, this is just a a minor, um, what we could call a modulation or a change in practices that we see when, Um, natural scientists collaborate with um, social scientists. Um, So yeah, to give you one example.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Marika. Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting kind of field site of study for an STS scholar. Um, I I just wonder, science technology studies is quite a broad a broad field right and there's lots of different kind of traditions that fed into it I wonder kind of like your theoretical framing of all this work what are you what are you drawing on from 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 that STS literature
2: yeah yeah that's an interesting question because as probably many STS scholars um, can identify with it's it's very difficult to kind of position yourself because it's so interdisciplinary so unbounded almost um, but what I would like to emphasize here is that my work really has two parts. I, even my dissertation is <laughs> divided into two parts. One is the more ethnographic observational, where I uh, draw on um, approaches such as um, empirical ethics and Dustin and Gallison's work on objectivity, epistemic virtues, to really think about how knowledge making practices uh, intertwined um, with values and um, the practices of doing good what people do on a day-to-day basis so it's really more in that field and especially in, in the Netherlands for instance we have great researchers working with empirical ethics such as Janet Poles even Anne-Marie Moll. I could mention here who really look at, um, at, the, at the practices and here of course practice theory is, is, is pretty big and especially where I got trained at Master's University we um, have a strong tradition of, of working into that direction and um, also, I uh, conducted conference ethnography, where I also observed, you know, how our socialization processes intertwined with uh, knowledge exchange, and of course, this builds on a very long tradition in science and technology studies, where it's all about uh, looking at. Um, what happens before um, scientific facts are actually solidified, how are normative discussions figuring in in the knowledge production process, so we can go back here very early on. But what I think here is interesting is that um, what I'm describing there is all um, rather um, observational, analytical, the critical dimension almost of science and technology studies, critical in the sense that You point also at sometimes the larger forces that are at play and that play a role in these dynamics. Um, Then on the other hand um, there is this more engaged side to um, science and technology studies and when I say engaged then I mean that this kind of really of, of science and technology studies tries to use analytical and critical insights to bring them into conversation and into collaborations with the people who they are studying. So this is, um, I think has become a really dominant in science technology studies in the last two decades, this really probably earlier on already, but really this active collaborations of looking at uh, how can our work um, make a difference in the fields we're studying. And um, uh, there, I think um, it's important to mention that I've worked a lot with, Practices and discourses on responsible innovation and responsible research and innovation. So, this is actually a combination, of course, of academic and policy-making discourses, which has grown in the last um, 10 years. Um, and this also brought me here to the School for the Future of Innovation and in Society, because we not only have quite some researchers working on responsible innovation in Maastricht, but also, of course, here where it's all about, you know, how can we um, connect with researchers, um, also with industrial actors to think about ethics, stimulate flexibility and responsibility um, in their practices in order to orient science also towards more um, pro-social values and not only in the, in the products that are produced but already starting in the process because of course the process is um, shaping what the product will look like so it's this ongoing interdisciplinary collaboration that is put at hearty of the work and so this is uh, where i would also um, locate um, my research um, Partly. And this is also what I'm, I'm moving into now for my postdoctoral research, but maybe we can talk about this uh, at the end. So well,
0: that's 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 great. Marka. And, that, and that, yeah, that point around um, just there around kind of uh, RRI, responsible research, innovation and that and the kind of role that that social scientists can play in kind of, you know, shaping innovation processes or, or influencing innovation processes for kind of social good, I think is a really, really kind of important um kind of strand of work that 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 I've recently started thinking about and some of the other work that I'm doing. So I think that's really interesting kind of conversation to, to have there um, around um, some work that I've started doing around the kind of future of flight technologies, but exactly those kind of issues of, of you know, how, how do we do innovation for social good is a really vital question. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I suppose that kind of leads a little bit into um, the sort of kind of next topic, because you've recently had a paper published um, in Biosocieties, uh, discussing epistemic goods um, in a randomized control trial on mindfulness and compassion meditation uh, so maybe maybe this does lead to that maybe maybe there is a nice segue there maybe there isn't but you can tell us so what what do you mean here by the term epistemic goods uh and how did they feature in in the uh, the rct that you studied
2: mm-hmm. so maybe before i start answering that question let me just point out that this is in the more observational side of my research so this is really drawn on laboratory ethnography where I do not reflect on um, my collaborations of course the separation is a bit artificial because of course I was there I was working with them with reflexive practices and I was observing them so um, you know strictly spe- speaking a uh, collaboration observation are always intertwined we're never um, just flies on the wall but, wall, but always um, participating But yeah, the way the analysis is framed is focusing more of of what I observed as going on in the laboratory. And um, yeah, on the concept of epistemic goods, so I already mentioned there's a long history in science and technology studies revealing the intertwinement of knowledge and ethical issues, um, and to um, really look into the values at stake, um, and also the values that shape um, specific uh, epistemic cultures, so that they are in their practices guided by cultures, specific convictions, norms, and values. And by introducing the concept of epistemic goods, I build on this scholarship. So to put it simply, epistemic goods are practices of doing good research that enact scientific norms. And the concept combines an empirical ethics approach with Destin and Gallison's seminal work on objectivity. So, an empirical ethics approach enables me to study values as practices by investigating how people attempt to accomplish something good with the help of devices, routines, and concepts in everyday activities. Destin and Gallison helped me apply an empirical ethics approach to knowledge production and to shed light on the historical continuity of what counts as good in a specific epistemic culture. They reconceive epistemology as ethics by considering it as a repository of multiple versions of the good that are products of distinct historical circumstances, but have persisted over time in knowledge making practices. So looking at practices throws uh, frictions between these goods into really so for example, we can see that precision and replicability can come at each other's expense. And in that sense, we also can acknowledge that what doing good research look like is always situated and context dependent. So this is in the abstract, what an epistemic good is, but I think it becomes more clear or tangible when I um, apply this. And um, I already mentioned the recently study before which is um, the project, which, um, yeah, I'm I'm very, very happy that they took me in for two semesters as a field researcher, um, working together with them. And this project, um, which is also known medic medit aging among researchers, it's a European horizon 2020 project, um, which evidently has many European partners, but I was actually joining a laboratory um, in in France in, in the northern city of Caen where basically the center of this project was located. And one part of that study is called H12. It's a three armed randomized control clinical trial with 137 study participants. Um, and it compares the effects of an 18 month meditation intervention with a foreign language intervention in English and a passive control group on mental health and well being in the study group of older adults. The trial also includes a group of 30 long term. Um, meditation practitioners who undergo the same battery of study examinations as the older adults. The idea is that if we compare novice with expert meditators, this helps to understand the mechanisms underlying meditation that are assessed with cognitive, behavioral, biological, neuroimaging, and sleep examinations. And um, when I joined this study as a participant observation, ob- observer, so the H12 well clinical trial more specifically, I noticed multiple ways of doing good research, which were sometimes in tension with one another. So for instance, internal validity and feasibility or objectivity and trained judgment. And although these paired epistemic goods are not necessarily incompatible, tensions occurred between them in research practice and also gave rise to debates within the Silva-Santi team about how to deal with these tensions, how to resolve them, how to make epistemic goods which are partly incoherent coexist next to each other. And I observed that the team developed different strategies to resolve such tensions. uh, for instance, reinterpreting the study protocol, carrying it formally while playing by formal rules, and adjusting the procedure of a study task. And um, I think that's in, interesting to study these strategies because understanding them helps us understand how um, the H1 clinical trial became doable in light of these multiple epistemic goods, partly pulling practices into opposite directions, so towards and away from strict adherence to the trial protocol. So now let me give you um, two epistemic goods that were um, in tension with one another, and that are also particularly interesting in the context of contemplative science or meditation research. So an epistemic good that is dominant in Western science is objectivity, which minimizes personal judgment through adherence to standardized methodological procedures. The rise of objectivity in modern science and clinical research, more specifically, is related to mistrust and subjectivity. Scientific analysis could be biased by interest and clinical decision-making could be impaired by convictions. And historically speaking, objectivity has been very important for meditation researchers for at least two reasons. So, one is that meditation research was long associated with countercultural, new age, and mystic trends. So, upholding the idea of objectivity was a way to preserve the boundary between science and religion that seemed to be threatened by meditation research. The other reason is that meditation research has undergone a credibility crisis already in the 1970s, so not only now that we've seen the hype around mindfulness, um, um, there there were lots of critiques, but already in the 1970s, when hundreds of studies were published on the benefits of transcendental meditation, um, there were then quite some critiques raised that these um, studies were full of flaws and implicated in conflicts of interests, especially given the fact that the American Transcendental Meditation Association funded most of the research. And of the, as of the early 2000s, um, second wave meditation research is how it's sometimes called if we consider transcendental meditation research as the first wave. So the second wave they've tried to avoid associations both with spirituality and with transcendental meditation by building scientific credibility through publishing in well-respected academic journals and carefully adhering to scientific norms, first and foremost objectivity. So, this is one uh, epistemic good that is very um, important in the community, but it conflicts with another important pursuit in meditation research, um, which is so called trained judgment, how I use the term also uh, from Destin and Gallison's work. And trained judgment is, in fact, at the heart of the scientific project, again, as contemplative science was also envisioned in its early days, because trained judgment is an alternative practice of doing good research that makes knowledge claims based on subjective criteria. So bringing subjective experience back into science um, is a key objective of um, second wave meditation researchers who aim to keep alive the scientific vision of Francisco Varela, which I mentioned earlier. So. Um, one of their challenges however is to conceptualize and operationalize um, meditation and in order to tackle that challenge they seek to collaborate with long-term meditators who have expertise in observing their inner experience and, and reporting the activity of their minds so Buddhist meditators are, as I mentioned before, not only conceived as study participants, but become active scientific collaborators who help to refine research protocols and contribute to scientific analysis and publications. But ongoing collaboration with expert meditators and which researchers remain responsive to feedback and flexibly adapt their work throughout the research process can challenge um, strict adherence to a clinical trial protocol outlining standardized methodological procedures. So of course, I need to mention here that this is more of a problem in a clinical trial setting, which is pretty rigid, where really there's the idea we design um, the trial, we carry it out according to the design and also according to the predefined analysis plan. This is different in more experimental and exploratory- uh, explorator, Sorry, explorative research, that's how you say it, yeah. And uh, there's more freedom to do this kind of collaborative work, but especially in the context of the Silva-Sante study, you could see really this clash between on the one hand, we need to follow the trial protocol. On the other hand, we have here um, Buddhist expert practitioners who tell us something about our study task and have great suggestions for revision. So how do we bring the two together and still make maybe slight revisions that we can still justify in the framework of a clinical trial um but while at the same time doing justice to this idea of collaboration and um yeah my recently published article shows how the researchers managed to do this
0: that's fascinating thank you yeah marika that that tension that that's being negotiated there kind of is 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 really really interesting and yeah i mean as um I I, I wanted to return to at some point but you've really nicely kind of got there up to that point around the methodological critique and how and how some of these issues are kind of headed off because of a kind of concern with you know with that potential methodological critique and obviously that history that you've kind of nicely brought up there that there's there's obviously a kind of uh, a kind of community memory of 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 where these you know where where methodological critique has been kind of leveled at these practices in the past and so people in these communities in these communities are are kind of doubly kind of you know it's kind of belt and braces we must make sure that we are you know following these you know uh, adhering to this set of values as as you know maybe more than others might or not necessarily that but you know we must make sure to 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 kind of present that we are adhering to this set of values this is really interesting um yeah, no, fascinating stuff. I don't know if you've got anything to, to add there, James, or points on that. I just think it's fair. No, uh, no, no, it is really interesting. What we, we, you were hinting towards there, Will,
1: I think was to what extent, <clears throat> say, in medical research, the strict adherence to the protocols of the the, uh, the the clinical trial would be followed to a T as well. Or if there's not also some rene- renegotiation or, or uh, backwards revision or... Uh, or interpretations that could have gone either way. I think you were hinting towards that, were you not? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, 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 it's really interesting. I, I wanted to broaden it out slightly as well, um, to ask um, like more generally, uh, how you think the ethnographic or, or sociological study of, uh, or with these researchers who, who scientifically study uh, and work with traditionally religious, uh, religious categories or practices um how does that help us to understand the role of and the the relationship between science and belief in society?
2: Yeah this is a really um interesting question um and I think I could give possibly two answers here. So the first is that ethnographic research can reveal how difficult it is to study contemplative or religious practices from a natural science perspective. Um I already mentioned Very much at the start of um, our um, conversation today that practices like meditation are socially and culturally orchestrated they rely on a mix of people skills activities processes and environments so attending to the present moment in a brain scanner is something else than meditating together in a group of um, fellow meditation practitioners and um, finding ways to operationalize practices like meditation to study their neurophysiological underpinnings in a culturally or contextually sensitive way is therefore a heavy task that contemplative scientists grapple with on a day-to-day basis. They struggle with the norms of doing good research, entrenched in fields like the neurosciences or clinical research, um, which map attention and, by extension, meditation onto particular brain areas or networks, um, presupposing that it's inside the brain rather than involving the entire body and an environment. But of course, meditation researchers are very aware of that, and they try to pursue more embodied, environmentally embedded approaches. And for that reason, they also have to uh, unsettle the boundaries of what is commonly considered as good science in their discipline. And I think revealing the hard work, work involved in doing so As well as the alternative conceptions of doing good research put forward in the process can help us um, challenge our understanding of what counts as robust evidence and it also helps us to see that there is room for multiplicity and that in fact if we want to evaluate research then we should do so from within the knowledge-making practices and i think here ethnographic research on this kind of work can really um, offer an interesting perspective uh, and contribute a view on these knowledge-making practices. And then the second answer um, that I think is important to mention here is that um, ethnographic research on scientific studies on contemplative or religious practices could help us shift our attention in society from the so-called hard impacts of science Of science um, to its soft impacts. So usually this terminology of hard and soft impacts is used in relation to technology, um, where it's really uh, about um, hard impacts being quantifiable, uncontroversial instances of hard that can be causally explained. And um, applying this to science, these hard impacts would, for instance, be physical pain or psychological distress inflicted on study participants during experimental examinations soft impacts are much more difficult to capture. These are less acknowledged in society, we could say, and um, moreover, less often accounted for by scientists because these impacts are difficult to value, difficult to quantify, uh, let alone explain causally because they affect culture, morals, and politics. But I think that soft impacts of modern science um, become increasingly relevant. So um, the reason is that scientific research um, always um, starting to to invade intimate spaces more and more, turning our minds and brains, which some consider as the essence of our personality into objects of study. At the same time, also modern societies in the West um, are relatively affluent and are concerned more with realizing positive goals like happiness and self development than satisfying basic needs, such as food safety and physical integrity. And this is also what we see in research, such as mindfulness research, which is All about um, looking at how these practices can contribute to well being, to the cultivation of human virtues uh, and human flourishing. So, and as human flourishing, for instance, is difficult to define and quantify, such research is likely to have soft impacts. And my work on contemplative science is, in a way, a case study of research with soft impacts. So the socio-ethical issues of contemplative science are less concerned um, with the infliction of harm, but rather focus on the ways in which meditation research influences personhood, society, and culture in the long run. And I think that by shedding light on soft impacts um, ethnographic research can raise wider awareness of their existence and also inform reflexive approaches to the governance of these impacts. And um, yeah, this again, brings me back to my interest and in responsible innovation that I just mentioned earlier.
1: Brilliant, thank you, Marika. And yeah, no, it just got me thinking. I mean, it's, it's such an uh, interesting uh, topic of study, um, the interrelation of, of, of scientific evidence gathering uh, on a community or a set of practices like uh, mindfulness or meditation. And in a way, what you're saying there is kind of an interesting demonstration of like the observer effect, or you might call it ecological validity in the social sciences. It's that, well, to measure this thing scientifically, you have to change the thing from what it would be if you weren't measuring it. <laughs> or do you so do you either change the the phenomenon you're trying to measure? Um, uh, measure to make it adhere to the sciences or do you change the scientific uh, practices through which knowledge can be generated about the phenomenon that is it just seems to be a fascinating um a fascinating study to see how that is negotiated
0: yeah it's a, it is such a fascinating topic and um i kind of yeah this i i'm i'm struggling to avoid just falling back on to that kind of um thinking at conceptualizing this kind of area in that kind of mindfulness way that you mentioned earlier Marek and in and that and, and because I know from everything you've said that your work itself focuses a lot you know beyond those kind of debates so I don't want to kind of drag you into something that you, you you're kind of we don't want to talk uh, you know we'll talk about but it's, it's I mean another question that um, kind of struck me is some of the work of uh, one of the um, guests we've had on earlier in the series some of the you know and kind of very prominent in kind of our networks of kind of the science and religion work is some of Elaine Eklund and thinking about how religion and she you know she has a series of kind of um, uh, books with her colleague David Johnson as well looking at how um, you know religion part like kind of plays a part for scientists but particularly I think you know looking at a range of religion but you know some some of the work kind of focusing on Christianity particularly I think or you know I think there is there's more to it than that but just thinking you mentioned you know I'm just thinking of some of the intersections that might exist there, because her work's very much kind of thinking about how you know, are, you know, religion, you know, that kind of working religious scientists, are they comfortable working in science and things like this? And I think some of the work that you're doing is is you know, complexifying that picture even further to say you know this there are practices that people might be engaged in that are kind of religious but then are 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 reconceptualized through scientific norms and then are doing some kind of further feedback so it's just really interesting thinking about this as a, as a kind of you know another explanation exploration in that sort of area but complexifying complexifying that picture further um again i'm not sure if that's a question just a reflection on what we've talked about um, so
2: you, you speak about um does that refer to the tensions that people experience by uh practicing contemplation themselves you know, and what they're practicing. Well, and- I
0: think a lot of it's to do with actually identities when it comes to Elaine's work. James, you might have to help me out here, but you know, this kind of, a, is it, are people comfortable kind of expressing a religious identity oh. in science, oh, for instance? You know, so are are, are how comfortable are um, religious, you know, people, you know, in expressing their they religious in science, or do they have to kind of hide their identities, or do they, you know, so the extent to which their practices, them, you know, I think, but then. Yeah, in terms of kind of practice in the sciences, I'm not sure if that's the kind of thing that she's talk about, but particularly kind of identities, I suppose. So I wonder if that, you know, but again, as you kind of intimated, it's practices kind of a part of identities and form identities, so there's sort of relationships there. So yeah. yeah.
2: Um, no, this is a very interesting question, which um, particularly towards the end of my PhD research caught my attention. Uh, my attention. Uh, especially this idea of contemplative scientists having a hybrid role identity, how I also call it, because they have one foot in science and one foot in, in contemplation, be it now Buddhist practices or anything else, because it has diversified, of course, uh, over the years in that community itself as well. And um, this hybrid role identity is interesting because we see again how this community really struggles with it because um, um It's not so much, I think, anymore as it was in the early days that people are afraid of being put into a countercultural box and therefore not being willing to come out of the closet, but rather working on mainstream topic um, uh, in their main career and doing maybe meditation, you know, as a side thing that you almost um, don't want to talk about. And this has changed because um, there is now, you know, so much hype about in the media. Actually, I think... um, you know, meditation research. They they are now invited to to speak um, on podcasts, and so it's actually something that gives you the public legitimacy of your work, which is also something we're now more and more concerned about. And um, but still, they struggle with this hybrid role identity because with having this foot in. Uh, contemplation, or let's say a Buddhist belief system, there is also a set of values that often clashes with the kind of values that we need to live in in, in science, or I would even say rather in the neoliberal academy. So this idea of being um, and ever um, more um, quick and producing results, being competitive, um, being almost um, yeah, very much focused on the self and the own promotion. So careerist ideas, these ideas come through and they of course are directly opposed to what we practice in, in, in Buddhism oftentimes where it's about slowing down, taking a step back, being not so much focused on the self because the self is empty anyways, but rather uh, having pro-social values and generosity at heart in our practices. And it's really interesting to see how this has become um, a a strong concern uh, um, in the community, also among young researchers. And there are actually grassroots movements um, emerging now in contemplative science who tried to um, promote actually a Buddhist value base more in science and also try to orient their practices accordingly. So um, in that sense, um, I would say this ethical project of contemplative science is really um, re-emerging. Also, these um, communi- these grassroots movements, they again refer often back to Varela, who said, always when I enter the lab, I should ask myself, why am I doing this? And is what I'm doing worth the sacrifice, you know, when I, for instance, work with a laboratory animal or so, and it's really interesting that these questions um, become again very, very dominant um, among researchers who see um, these frictions um, in their uh, in their own identity, in their hybrid role identity. Um, but rather than only looking at this as something that people are struggling with, what I try to actually argue in my work is to say. Having a hybrid role identity is also a resource. It's especially a resource when it comes to reflection on the socio-ethical and wider implications of your work, because uh, you are already used to dealing with value conflicts, of handling these tensions, and of thinking about uh, wider questions. And then only, you know, is my work uh, valid? precise uh, and reproducible. So uh, I think uh, in that sense, yeah, this question of identity is is very interesting. And also it's um, a question I had to ask myself as well as a researcher, because of course, as an ethnographer, the question of your own identity and positionality is is very important. And so a lot of my work has also focused on this question of not only positionality, but also to what extent are my own interests and convictions influencing the process. Um, and this question was particularly raised um, because I started my PhD research actually with being very interested in Vipassana meditation, being a Vipassana meditator myself. So um, before um, I started my PhD, it was right at the end of my master's degree. I traveled through Europe and then participated myself in a um, meditation retreat and um, by uh, Gwenka. So, you you might have heard about this, this is a very widespread practice of of Buddhist meditation in the West, because it's donation based and very accessible. And what was very interesting also, and I think what makes the practice so attractive, is that Gwenka really communicates about meditation in a very accessible way and offers a framework to make sense of your own meditation experience. And then um, this got me really hooked. And then I started exploring and saw all this scientific work, um, like guidebooks published, for instance, by Ulrich Ott, a a German um, neuroscientist, Meditation for Skeptics. I remember reading that and really seeing, oh, this is another framework to make sense of my own experience. And this is what initially um, really got me interested in studying further perspectives on making sense of the practice. And since I was studying science and technology studies back at the time, this idea of looking at epistemic cultures gave me yet another angle to make sense of contemplative science in this community more at large, which is why I got into this research. Research then. But of course, at the start, people were asking, so to what extent can you um, actually think about um, contemplative science? If you're yourself so much involved in, in contemplative practices, how does this influence your own work? And again, I would say it was resource many times because the fact that I myself was a meditation practitioner, when I started going to these conferences. I was immediately able to bond with people, not only based on scientific interests, but also on the spiritual plane, so to say, and this is very important in this community, because um, especially these contemplative science uh, conferences as also called European summer research institutes organized by the minor life Institute. It's all about facilitating also a holistic exchange, which is not only focused on. Um, you know, um, talking about our research results, but also um, to um, practice together meditation and to talk um, more about wider questions and, and what drives us in, in in our work. So this was again a rather a resource to connect with people, um, rather than um, uh, a downside or something that would have um, inflicted my perspective. But of course, in the in ethnography, we have the uh, advantage that the idea is or we all know that you know knowledge is always situated so it's all about making our position transparent and reflecting about it rather than trying to to cut it out um yeah so i hope that answered your question
0: no that, that's that's fantastic Mark. i just have two very quick observations because i know we've been talking for a long time and i know it's I said it's very early there and i'm sure you need a, a coffee or i you know <laughs> something to that effect but um but no i mean i think there's the, the point you were making at the start there about the um uh about kind of how um, kind of meditation research has become kind of more mainstream and more acceptable and not a thing that people have to do as a side project anymore. I think there's a very interesting potential PhD for someone else to do about the kind of tracing that as a parallel to something like parapsychology as a kind of research area, which is never kind of, you know, or other fringe sciences, you know, and this kind of how, how sciences may move to become more or less fringy depending on you know that well what the kind of historical contingencies that lead to that but again that's that's another, another research question entirely but i think also the point um or set of research questions but the, the point you made about how some of these practices may help, or may kind of be a resource that people can draw on, particularly when thinking about the kind of neoliberal academy, which again is a topic that comes up repeatedly in this podcast. I think, particularly when James and I are hosting it, anyway, things that we think and talk about quite a lot. But um, I think that's a really fascinating point, and um, the idea that perhaps the neoliberal academy is both kind of, in lots of ways, um, misaligned with values that science, you know has previously kind of um, fostered or, or been built around, if you go back to think about kind of Merton and those kind of Mertonian norms, the extent to which science maybe operates in that way, as Merton talked about it, maybe perhaps isn't, you know, that's not a brilliant description of how science works kind of normatively, but if we think about kind of the aspirations of science being loosely aligned with kind of how Merton thought about them, another way of thinking about um, what those norms actually are. But, you know, I mean, how much the neoliberal academy fosters those kind of values is probably, you know, up for debate, or maybe it doesn't very well. But interesting that you know, also the the kind of values that are that underpin a lot of these kind of buddhist practices as you've described them they're you know also being inimical to those kind of neoliberal academies so you've got on both sort of sides the neoliberal academy kind of opposed to those different value systems and how you know maybe um you know the, the drawing on both of the, you know draw, drawing on uh, you know this hybrid identity can help you to kind of resist against some of those things i think is a really potentially interesting um uh yeah an interesting kind of thought and you know de- definitely if we think that the neoliberal academy should be resisted then you know the the, the various ways we can do that are, are you know all potentially kind of beneficial so i just think that's that's a really interesting thought you e, i don't know if you have any kind of final reflections james yeah. or marika, marika
2: i just wanted to to add that i think this is especially interesting when we think about um discourses on responsible innovation and the practices we use in order to foster responsibility. Because one line of work that I'm pretty fond on is really this focus um, on the researchers themselves. Of course, responsible innovation has many levels or many um, points of intervention that are important, being not only the individual, but of course also the institution and the political level. But I think we can do a lot at the individual level by acknowledging that um, actually many of us have hybrid role identities. I mean, we're not only scientists, or in our case, social scholars. Um, but that we are also citizens and usually combine these multiple identities and in that sense have what we could also call native capacities to reflect upon the wider implications of our work even though science traditionally frames itself very narrowly and it's this idea of you know science um, science is not about values that's that's what politicians should do that's what society is responsible for but in fact you know we already have these capacities to think about these aspects of our work and I think and that's what I'm um trying to develop further here we just need the right um methods to unleash this native capacities and to make them part of our work and to take the time to reflect upon this because again bringing it back to the neoliberal academy what's most most or often the problem is that there's just no time for reflection and um there's also no structure that allows reflection in a group or on an individual level to to happen so um and i think arizona state university is, is a great um community here especially at the school for the future of innovation and society where people have thought a lot about these kinds of practices and methodological approaches that help us bring reflexivity um yeah into science so that's um just one thing i i wanted to emphasize
0: that's great thank, thank you so much for that more yeah, yeah, yeah more time for well more time here here that's what's that's perfect then and, and yeah um Fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, thank, thank you so much for this. It's been been really fascinating conversation. Um, I've, had a, I've had a great time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you for inviting me. It was great talking to you.
0: Thanks again to today's guest, Marika Smolka, and to my co-host today, Dr. James Riley. This is the final episode of Season 2 of the Science and Belief in Society podcast, so I'd like to say thanks to my other co-hosts, Dr. Rachel Shillitoe and Dr. Richard Grove, and to all our guests across the series. For more information and episodes, please visit www.scienceandbeliefinsociety.org. We'll be back in the autumn with Season 3, but until then, I'm Dr. Will Mason-Wilkes, and this is the Science and Belief in Society podcast.
1: Thanks for listening.